coming up on Venture Voice. I think that 90% of evangelism is that you're affiliated with something that is good news. Because let me tell you, it is very hard to evangelize crap. I would rather take a great product and train the evangelist than take a great evangelist and make them and find and fix the product for that person. Because a great evangelist with crap is still crap. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant. I'm really excited to have Guy Kawasaki back on my podcast. I first had him on back all the way in 2006. We reconnected. Uh, Guy's kind of a legend in Silicon Valley. He was originally the chief evangelist for Apple back in the Steve Jobs days. And he just resurrected that title for Canva, a very cool startup that makes creating images for social media and other places accessible to everybody. Actually, my company, Muckrack, is a customer of Canva. We use it all the time to make images. And Canva uses Muckrack to do their PR. But it was a lot of fun to talk to Guy about the differences between PR and evangelism and what exactly evangelism is outside of Silicon Valley and tech. I don't think anyone uses that term unless you're promoting a religion, but it is something really important, just spreading the word about a new startup, a new idea. And it's something guys really mastered. Lots and lots of entrepreneurs have read his book, The Art of the Start. And he now has a podcast himself, really great podcast called Remarkable People. I highly encourage you to subscribe to his podcast too. But first, listen to my interview with him right now. Guy, welcome back to Venture Voice. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So the first time I interviewed you for a podcast, it was 2006. I came to your office at Courage Technology Ventures. I just went back and listened to that episode. You were telling me at the time your goal was to be in the Technorati top 10 blogs. So did you make it? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels like such a different world since then. Yeah. Does Technorati even exist anymore? I don't believe so, no. Yeah. Huh. Nope. Now everything is an app, right? So it's like you got to be in the Apple podcast top 10. That's right. There's always a new goal. Yep. It was such a different frame of mind going back then. I mean, I remember when I started my podcast in 05, I talked to other entrepreneurs about how they'd learn about business. Yeah. Everyone talked about the art of the start. There was before VC blogs. It was before entrepreneurs <laughs> was tweeting. I feel like you wrote one of the only books back then that kind of had that Silicon Valley credibility where you could get that insider's look without living in Silicon Valley. I hope that I help empower an entire generation of entrepreneurs. You know, that book, is a curriculum standard in many, many places for the entrepreneur course. I won't go too much into your history because I want to encourage everyone to go back to that podcast we recorded back in 06 and listen to it. <laughs> so I just want to kind of start off from 2006 and go forward from there. I remember at the time you were working on a Garage Technology Ventures and yep. you talked about how it was a small venture firm. How'd that go? And how, how is life as a VC? And I remember you also had some choice words about other VCs back then. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, garage and that whole genre, it was okay. Yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't horrible. It was okay. 
no lifestyles were changed necessarily <laughs> by that <laughs> that period. And then since then, I've been a writer, a speaker, and six years ago, I joined Canva as Canva's chief evangelist. And Canva is just a rocket. So that's been very good. We make about 7 million images a day. We have about 36 million monthly active users. Canva is what I call Guy's Golden Touch, which is not that whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's Golden Touch is whatever is gold Guy touches. I can't wait to talk about Canva. It's such an inspiring story. Yeah. You know, I know between Garage and now, you also started All Top and had a uh, adventure in kind of like that early aggregation area back when everyone was yeah. trying to figure it out. What was that journey like? Like what led you to start All Top? I was very active and still am very active in social media. And I view my role in social media as a curator as opposed to a creator. And so I needed a constant flow. I had to feed the content monster every day. And so I would subscribe to all these RSS feeds according to tech and business and cars and, you know, Macintosh and whatever subjects that I wanted to curate. I finally asked somebody, you know, can't you put multiple RSS feeds together so I can go to one place and see all the car feeds, all the tech feeds, all the entrepreneurship feeds, all the venture capital feeds. And so that was the genesis of All Top. All Top stood for all the topics. That's cool. And I almost wonder now how many people still know what RSS feeds even are. It, yeah. it just felt like such a cutting edge thing back then. And now I worry uh, not as many people know, but it, but it was really <laughs> ahead of its time. And what happened with Alltop? Like, what did the employee count get up to? What was the apex? And then... Alltop was, once you create the framework, you just keep adding RSS feeds and topics. So it was one and a half people. We eventually sold it, again, for not anything that changed anybody's lifestyle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the beginning of my career was just stupendous with Macintosh. And the end of my career, Canva is also stupendous. Between that, there was a lot of thrashing. How do you roll with the punches? Because there are so many people, you know, you've had a long career, and I think there are a lot of young entrepreneurs where like their first thing fails and they're just dejected and go to their corporate job and give up on it. <laughs> well, a lot of that just has to do with luck. It has to do with your upbringing. And it has to do, I think, some of it with just your perspective in life. And some people believe that it's a zero sum game. And if, your gain is somebody's loss and somebody else's gain is your loss. I don't think that's a very useful attitude in this world, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur. How do you kind of uh, you know, know when to couple your ego with the idea and take it away? Like I've always struggled with this where there's an idea I really believe in. Yeah. I become that person. You know, For a moment, you're the all-top person. And then the next moment, you feel like, okay, well, I got to go in a different direction and I'm someone outside of the company. Like, How do you both be passionate about it without getting wrapped up? This is the question that any management writer, author, thinker, speaker really never addresses. And the central issue is that much of management advice is based on allegory, story, situations, you know, unique data points, as opposed to science. Let's say you worked at Apple, right? And so you would tell the story of, well, 
Even in the darkest days of Macintosh and Apple, we believed in the Macintosh, we believed in iOS, and we wouldn't give up. And the lesson there is, oh, you don't give up. Eventually, you become a trillion-dollar company. That's plan A. Plan B, you work for a company, and it, it started off as a service. It pivoted to a hardware product, or it started off with hardware. You pivoted to software, or you started off as a consulting firm. You ended up as a search engine called Google. And the lesson there is you pivot. And so, depending on which book you read or which TEDx you watch, you would think pivoting or gutting it out is the right answer. And there is no science to this because it's impossible to configure a situation where you say, okay, let's like take two equal ideas in two equal markets with two equal teams and let's control pivoting versus not pivoting. Let's have a null hypothesis. Let's do science here where you control all the variables except one. And that's impossible. So this is a very long answer to tell you that nobody knows. And the only way you can know is looking backwards. So if you pivot and you're successful, hallelujah. If you gut it out and you're successful, hallelujah. If you gut it out and you fail, or if you pivot and you fail and you die, no one cares about your story. So that's the challenge in you know, sort of seeking wisdom in entrepreneurship. Yeah, there's kind of no right answer. And so like, how do you know, you know, to take any of your examples, like let's say with Alltop, how do you decide like, okay, let's just sell it versus this is going to be the one I'm going to make into my billion dollar exit and let me go raise venture? You don't know. You have no idea. There is no answer to this question. I mean, there's only after the fact, if you're right, you declare victory. If you're wrong, nobody gives a shit because you're not on the radar. It's so... There really is no right answer. With Canva, you met the founders. I believe they flew to uh, Silicon Valley and you invited them over. How, what was the first time you heard from them? Well, so what happened was, this is uh, six years ago, seven years ago, I was active on Twitter. And my theory of Twitter is that every tweet has to have a video or a photo. And so someone who worked for me named Pig Fitzpatrick was creating these tweets using Canva. And so Canva noticed that I was using Canva and they reached out to me via a tweet. I happened to see that tweet, which is just dog shit good luck right there. And I answered them and they said, you know, we see that you use Canva, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, you know, I like Canva. And they said, we're going to be in the United States soon. And, and then I asked Peg, so isn't this the thing you use? She said, yes. Do you like it? She said, yes. Should I help them? She said, yes. So that's why I met with Canva. All off a tweet. All off a tweet. Absolutely. And I believe I read you almost missed the tweet or you were getting so many tweets at the time. It could have... Uh... Oh, easily. I'm telling you, without a lot of serendipity and good luck and timing and et cetera, et cetera, I would not be involved with Canva. Like right now, somebody could be tweeting me and I not necessarily would catch it. So... You know, it was just meant to be, I guess. Yeah, this could be a very expensive podcast if I'm keeping you from the <laughs> next multi-million dollar <laughs> tweet. Well, we will probably never know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more of the details of how that meeting went down. Like, is it right that you invited them to your house? Yep. The three of them, uh, the two founders and Zach. Zach, who's now in charge of, uh, I think, HR and marketing. He has ever-expanding roles. 
Uh, they came to my house. They showed me, you know, future version. They showed me, you know, sort of power user features. And they told me about their plans, how to democratize design. And I'm into democratization. Uh, you know, I think Macintosh democratized computing. So why not democratize design? That's a good thing. And really, the rest is history. The rest is history. And one of the things that I learned as I got older and older is that it is better to be lucky than smart. I mean, you've been pitched, I'm sure, hundreds of times by startups wanting you to yeah. use their tools. Did they seem like just like anybody else and it kind of just worked out from what you could tell from meeting them in person or no, was there something I mean, different about them? First of all, the fact that Peg, who is very picky, loved it, you know, that's data point number one. And data point number two, you know, it doesn't take a great leap of intelligence to go from, boy, it's too hard to make graphics. You have to buy $700 Photoshop and then you know, Photoshop puts up a window with 2,000 tools around it, and you have no idea where to even begin with Photoshop. I mean, you would not give Photoshop to someone who's not technical and say, okay, build me a graphic, right? And so that was pretty obvious. And it was pretty obvious that if you wanted to stand out and communicate better, you had to have graphics. You can't just use text. So those two things, and then you add Peg's, you know, approval, that's three. I mean, three points like that, that's good enough. So it, it wasn't like I had to suspend disbelief. You know, it wasn't like I had to convince myself that someday this could be a big thing. It was pretty apparent. But having said that, in a rare moment of humility, let me also tell you that I have squeezed the trigger in a 10, 15 times in my career. And every time I thought I was on the cusp of funding the next unicorn or starting the next unicorn or being in the next unicorn. I'm one for 15 or you know, something like that. So like being one for 15 is still better than being zero for 15. I guess all that matters is the one, right? <laughs> yeah, you only need one. <laughs> and how'd the meeting end? Like, was it during that first meeting at your house? They were just like, okay, be our chief evangelist. And you said yes. Or how does the courtship period work for a, uh, a chief evangelist? I don't think it's much different from another employee. Although, you know, back then the balance of power was in my court, right? Because I was the one who was visible and, you know, credible and well-known and, you know, all the other BS. And they were the three guys, four guys, five guys and a gal, five gals and a guy, you know, whatever combination it was in a small little office in Sydney. So they were selling as opposed to I was buying. That just happened to be the dynamics. Now, today, if you apply to Canva, they get thousands and thousands of applications. So if today you apply to Canva, you have to be selling. You're not buying. How does it work for it to be a chief evangelist? Is it like any other job role where there's a, a salary and a, a certain amount of equity or where there are different dynamics to it? I made a very smart decision. So back then, I told them I didn't want money. I wanted pure equity. And so let's just say that was a very good decision. And you know, at the time, I was, well, if I'm 66 now, it was six years ago, I was 60. It wasn't like I was 25 and trying to pay a mortgage and a car and you know, baby food and diapers. So I was sort of comfortable already. 
So I could roll the dice and do a pure equity deal, which with hindsight is freaking genius. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now it's a multi-billion dollar valuation. And I think I read in your book, your standard equity is half a percentage point. Yeah. Listen, like I said, it's better to be lucky than smart. It's better to be lucky than smart. What exactly are the data? I mean, we talked about this back in 06, at how it worked at, at Apple when you were working yeah. on the Macintosh. But what is the day-to-day of a chief evangelist like now or, you know, from the time you started working with Canva to, to now? What are the actual, you know, day-to-day things you're doing? I'm not in the headquarters in Sydney, right? I'm 6,000, I don't know if it's kilometers or miles, but I'm far away. <laughs> and my job is not to run a department. It is an outward focus. It is to be visible. So I would speak 50 to 75 times a year, always get introduced as the chief evangelist of Canva. Sometimes I did a little demo at the end of a speech. You know, I put a slide in about the company. I also made a lot of biz dev connections for them. So it's not one of these jobs where you, you know, you clock in at eight, you clock out at five and you put in a good, you know, eight hours of hardcore, you know, work at your desk. To take an extreme example, sometimes it would take me, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, let's say they wanted a connection at Apple to talk about their iOS app, right? That would be a 30-second email from me to someone who worked for me when I was at Apple. So you could say, guy, that's what you did today? You you sent a 30-second email? Well, it took 25 years to get to the point where I could send a 30-second email. I mean, that's like saying to Michael Jordan, it's so easy for you to dunk. Well, <laughs> you know, think of all the effort it took to for Michael Jordan to get to the point where he could dunk and shoot a three-pointer like that. So at my sort of age and position in life, you don't measure it by the clock. What made you decide to want to go this route? I mean, a lot of people, they're obsessed with how many people report to them. Yeah. And they'd say, let me be the CMO and have 100 people rolling up to me and I'll give the keynote presentation. You said, I don't want any direct reports. I just want to be giving the keynote and speaking on behalf of the company. You know, Assuming they were excited to work with you, why didn't you make <laughs> a play to have the whole department work for you? Well, because... I started this at 60. I didn't want to be a CEO, a CMO. I didn't want to be a CXO, see anything. Oh, I just, I wanted to be with my family. And at that time, I loved playing hockey. So I wanted to play hockey every day and be with my family. Now, six years later, I want to surf every day and be with my family. So the reason why I asked you to delay our interview is because the waves were pretty good today, and I wanted to surf half an hour longer. <laughs> so it, it was, I, I don't want to burst your bubble that, you know, Tim Cook was calling me, so I had to push our meeting back. <laughs> uh, it was because I was surfing. That's an even better excuse. <laughs> surf before <laughs> podcasts. Yeah, I try to do that here in the city with bike rides every now and then. You just have to uh, optimize your life, especially in the pandemic era. Yeah, well, it's a whole new world. I guess one of my questions, you know, for, for entrepreneurs listening to this and they're thinking like, how do I get the word out about my company? And maybe they're scaling up their business. You know, do you think other companies should have evangelists that aren't named Guy Kawasaki? Like, do you think this should be <laughs> just a standard role that any decent sized company has? 
Well, first of all, evangelism means that you're bringing the good news. It comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So I brought the good news about the democratization of design, where anybody could have beautiful designs. They didn't have to get training. They didn't have to buy expensive software. They didn't have to write an RFP, find a graphic designer, suck up to the internal graphic design department. You know, you could create your own great designs. So that's good news. And that's what an evangelist does is bring the good news. I think that 90% of evangelism is that you're affiliated with something that is good news. Because let me tell you, it is very hard to evangelize crap, okay? Very, very hard. Where does the CEO sit? I mean, obviously, Melanie is an extraordinary founder and gets a tremendous amount of press and attention herself. What's her thinking in terms of like, hey, when, when is Guy the face of the company? When am I the face of the company? When do we put other execs to be the face of the company? Well, we have a very good relationship. In some sense, you know, my visibility started high and is gradually deteriorating because I'm so old. So the people who know me at Apple are, you know, gradually getting out of the workforce. On the other hand, her visibility started low, Western Australia startup, you know, and is peaking. So now she's the CEO of a unicorn, a $6 billion unicorn. And I'm sitting in a closet in Santa Cruz doing podcasts. Well, you're surfing too, to be fair. That's true. It was never as if I went to work there as a CMO with the concept that someday I would like to be CEO. I don't want her job. I would not be good at her job. I am not capable of doing her job. Pre-pandemic, she could not go and make 75 speeches a year around the world. She had to do you know, her day job, all the stuff that it takes, the engineering, the management, the finance, you know, all the other stuff, she had to do that stuff. It's a lesson in management that you should hire people who compliment you, not duplicate you. Do you think that she, there are some entrepreneurs who are just naturally great showmen or show people, and, and there are some entrepreneurs that have to kind of learn to speak publicly and be out there. Which category do you think Melanie falls in? And did you, did you have to work with her at all on how to present herself? No, she's, she's the full package. I mean, she's like Steve Jobs, only nice. How's that? <laughs> she is the total package. And I think a lot of men, not to be sexist, would find it difficult to wrap their heads around what I'm about to say, which is, it is a source of great pride to me that I work for a woman who is half my age. I don't think there's a lot of men in the world who would say, yeah, I work for a woman half my age and think that was cool. I think that is so freaking cool. It's off the scale. So yeah, it's been great. That's great. Are there other aspects of her leadership that you noticed or are? Well, I'll tell you what, I have never worked for an organization that had a more relentless pursuit of perfection than Canva. So I have worked for organizations where the engineering is really strong and that's the core competitive strength of a company or the marketing is really strong and that's the core competitive strength of a company. But every part of Canva is optimizing. And I mean that there are groups of people who optimize the onboarding procedure. Once you click, 
I want to sign up. There are teams optimizing that. There are teams optimizing the display of the stock photography. There are teams optimizing how many design types. A design type is like presentation, Instagram, Etsy, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, graphic, right? So presentation, flyer, business card. So there's a team optimizing what design types we should have. There's a team optimizing what templates we should have within every design type. And I have never worked with a company that was every little group is trying to perfect what they do. I guess you were ahead of the curve that you were working with Canva totally remotely well before the pandemic, but we're all struggling with this now. And at my own business side, we have people working for us uh, all across the world. And we struggle with time zones more than anything else. How did you deal with the time zone chasm between uh, the West Coast Pacific time and Australia? You know, some of it is for the third time. I'm a 66-year-old guy. I mean, I don't need a lot of supervision, right? And so I had a very simple task, which is get the word out about Canva. Like make as many people in the world cognizant that Canva has democratized design and can make you into a designer. So, yeah, that's kind of my job description. I didn't have to have a monthly meeting to go over goals and (laughs) and tactics. I was like a weapon. Just turn me loose. Don't worry about it. I'm always interested in PR. You know, my own business, Muckrack, is a PR software platform, and Canva has been a longtime customer, so I've gotten to know them well. And we're a customer of Canva, so I, I love the platform more than anyone. How do you interact with the PR department? And, and more generally, how, how should people think about evangelism separate or together with public relations? I think evangelism is a spirit that the entire company should have. Whether you're the front desk receptionist or the CMO or the CEO or CTO or CFO, everybody should be evangelistic. You should all believe that Your product is good news. The Macintosh division had all functional areas, but everybody was evangelistic about Macintosh. And so I think it is an attitude that should pervade the entire organization. Now, there may be some people such as me whose primary goal is to get the news out, but you don't want a bunch of people who just say, oh yeah, it's Guy's responsibility to get the word out. I'm not going to, I'm just going to sit here and you know run Excel spreadsheets all day. So it's a generalized attitude, but there are some people named evangelists. Now, I'm not hung up on the word evangelism because, well, in today's world of Trumpism, evangelism, which is very close to evangelical, is a very, very tricky term. First of all, prior to Trump, when people heard that I was a software evangelist, some of it was at very least confusing. Like, what is an evangelist in a company as opposed to a church? So there was that sort of confusion. There was also some negativity. So if you're a hardcore Christian, you might say, how dare they co-opt the term and take something that was attributed to Jesus and John the Baptist And now they're slapping it on people, trying to get people to use a graphic design tool or trying to get people to use a computer. So there was that. And then there are some people who were just anti-religion or agnostic and didn't want any kind of religious term associated with business. So that was before Trump. Now, with Trump, if you ask people what 
evangelical stands for. Let's just say you're going to get a very different response today from many people, right? So some people believe that it is evangelical equals Trump. And let's just say that, you know, roughly 51% of the United States would not find that a positive. So because evangelical and evangelistic are so close, it's tricky now. You thought of rebranding it to software minister, software rabbi? No, I, I am what I am at this point. If people, you know, let's just say that I don't think anybody who knows anything about me would confuse me with Trumpism. When you talk about making everyone an evangelist or, or having that spirit, let's take the receptionist. Do you think it, it has to do just with who you hire, that you're screening for people who believe in your product in the hiring process? Or do you think you can take your team and that there's some way to convert them, for lack of a better word? or <laughs> Brainwash them? Brainwash them. Yeah, exactly. How do you brainwash everybody to be an evangelist? I think in the hiring process, you know, of course, you look at people's background in work. You also look at their educational background because, I mean, frankly, if you wanted someone to be your controller, you sure as hell better find somebody who took accounting, right? So you need education, you need experience. But then I would just ask you to look at a third box. And the third box is, does he or she get it? Do they understand what a Macintosh is? Do they understand what Canva does, even if it's the CFO? And so I just think you should add that additional requirement that the people get it and love it. Were you able to tell early on or were you involved in seeing Canva's hiring process and seeing if what they did to make everyone an evangelist? Well, I was 6,000 miles away for, you know, most of the time. I was often used to close the recruiting of key employees. And by that, I mean, you know, if we were trying to steal somebody from a, a successful company or a good position, or if this was a really hot college graduate and had a choice between you know, Microsoft, Google, Canva, Atlassian, you know, whatever, often I would be called in to call that person or Skype that person and have a conversation about why that person should ignore all those other companies and come to work for Canva. Now, what do you say? Like, if I, if I was, uh, I had my offer to work at Google for 300K and then I got my offer for Canva at 150 and some stock options. What, what was the pitch for why I should go to Canva? You know, part of the pitch is, well, you know, that other company is a very fine company. You will be one of 75,000 employees. You will be working on, you know, one little corner of the homepage, whether it should be blue or red. Uh, and that's after six months your conclusion that red tests better than blue is not going to exactly move the needle for the $3 billion annual revenue. You're not going to get a lot of stock options. This is pioneering work here. Someday, if we're successful, you're going to say, I was part of the team that democratized design. Or you could say I'm the 75,000th employee of this large search engine company and I was responsible for A-B testing in the lower right corner of the webpage. I talk about the new challenges facing entrepreneurs now and for people just getting started who, who don't have a chief evangelist and they feel like they have to do it all themselves. It's such a different world now than it was even in 06 where 
there's just such an overwhelming amount of content on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, you know, every social platform, you're up against Fortune 500 companies spending money to get the word out. What do you say to the entrepreneurs who are like, hey, I've got this great idea. I need to evangelize it. I need to get the word out about it. I don't have any money. How do I do it? Well, at any given point, uh, whether we're going back to Hewlett and Packard or Waz and Jobs or Yang and Philo or Sergey and, oh my God, what is the co-founder of Google? Larry Page. Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Right. So if it's Brin and Page, Steve and Waz, obviously, everybody has challenges. So you could say, wow, you know, woe is me. There's so much competition now. And there's so much noise in social media and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, back in Steve and, and Waz's day, you would complain, well, you know, advertising is so expensive. It's $75,000 to be in the Wall Street Journal on Thursday and the Comdex booth just to fly to Comdex and house everybody. And then we have to rent the booth space and then we have to build the booth. And so, you know, that could be a quarter million dollars. And, and now, I mean, you know, if you're good at social media, social media is fast, free, and ubiquitous. So if you're an entrepreneur and you're waiting for that moment where you have a unique product that nobody else literally can make in a growing market with no competition, with a world-class team, with all the capital that you need, you are on a hard drug. That situation is never going to occur because if it were easy, more people would do it. So entrepreneurship is about overcoming risk and adversity. It's not about waiting for the perfect time. You're a great communicator guy. And I, I know Melanie is also a, an amazing speaker and great at talking about the vision. What do you recommend to the entrepreneurs out there who built something great, but are terrified of public speaking, don't feel like they're good communicators? How do they go out there and evangelize and get the world to know about their invention? Well, I think 90% of it is a great invention, all right? That's guy's golden touch. So it's easier to be excited. It's easier to do a great demo and a great explanation of something that's great. Duh. And I would rather take a great product and train the evangelist and take a great evangelist and make them and find and fix the product for that person. Because a great evangelist with crap is still crap. So... It is about, like I said, finding or creating a great product. I am not saying it'll sell itself, but then it's just telling the story. I'm telling you, 90% of it is the product. Now, you started your own podcast uh, just a little bit under a year ago, I believe, last uh, December. Yes, it's almost been a year for my podcast, yes. Congratulations. Can I tell you something? So I've had, I don't know, whatever, 46 episodes. And it's called Remarkable People. The website is remarkablepeople.com. And I truly have remarkable people. You know, I don't have Joe Blow from Blow Consulting who wrote The Blow Away, published by Blow Press, okay? I have Jane Goodall, Ariana Huffington, Margaret Atwood, Christy Yamaguchi, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Bob Cialdini, Andrew Yang, Sean Thompson. I have remarkable people. I think, as I look back on my career, my podcast is the best work that I have ever done. And I think it's the least appreciated work that I've done. 
So it's the best work I've done and it's the least appreciated. And I honestly, sitting here in November of 2020, I don't know how to fix that problem yet. By least appreciated, you mean you don't think enough people have listened to it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I realize that relative to the entire universe of podcasts, it's doing quite well. But let's just say that, you know, Joe Rogan has more subscribers than I do by orders of magnitude. And so does NPR. And I would put my guest list up and the information in my podcast against any podcast in the world. Why do you think it's been hard for people to discover it? A lot of it is noise. You know, I thought that the pandemic would be the best thing for podcasting because now people gain back two hours a day, right? So you're not commuting. So you have two hours more a day to listen to podcasts. Well, (laughs) turns out that's not exactly true. Because in that two hours a day, when you're traveling, when you're driving, or you're in a train or a bus or something, you can kind of zone out and listen to a podcast. But now you don't have those two hours a day. And guess what? You have your little kids at home. And your little kids, they got to get on Zoom. They have to start using Schoology. And they have to use Quizlet. And they have to use God only knows what, you know. And then you have to feed them not one meal a day, not two meals a day, but three meals a day and all snacks. So if you think that the average worker has gained back two hours a day of his or her life and is now sitting around doing yoga, listening to podcasts, wake up and smell the smell the ragweed, baby, because I think people are busier than ever. What makes it so fulfilling to you? I mean, you wrote a book. A lot of people are like writing a book. I get to sign the book, mail it to all my friends. Like that seems like the penultimate content creation. You're saying the podcast, you're more proud of it or you feel like the output's yes. even better? I don't know if I'll ever write a book again, although I've said that 14 times now. It's because A podcast is so much more timely. And also, after you've written 15 books, quite honestly, you kind of run out of things to say. I mean, you could say that I wrote one book 15 times. So a podcast, I'm bringing out the wisdom of Jane Goodall and Margaret Atwood and Ariana Huffington and Martha Stewart and Christy Yamaguchi. That's not my wisdom. If you listen to my podcast, it's 95% them, 5% me. If you're an author, it takes you a year to write the book, and then it takes six months to a year for your publisher to get it actually out on the shelf, if there is a shelf anymore. So it's an 18-month or two-year project. Well, I mean, imagine the worst case. You wrote a book about how to start a company, and it came out in March of 2020. There's not one word in your book about dealing with a pandemic and how do you pitch a company virtually? How do you conduct sales calls virtually? There's nothing like that. How do you onboard a new employee when you haven't even met the person? You recruited that person virtually. You signed the person up virtually. You onboarded them virtually and now they're working virtually and you're managing them virtually. There's nothing in your book about that. Your book is instantly dead. By contrast with a podcast, It could be days, it could be hours between the time you record it and you deploy it. So case in point, and I'll be the first to admit, this is just dumb shit luck, okay? So about three or four weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Vivek Murthy. 
He was the Surgeon General for Barack Obama. He was fired by Donald Trump. And we go into this whole thing about what it's like to be a Surgeon General, what does a Surgeon General do, how does the political system work, you know, what would he do if he were Surgeon General, what should we be doing about the pandemic, you know, blah, 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 how to deal with loneliness, all this, right? Well, guess what? He's named as one of three people running Joe Biden's Coronavirus Task Force. Now, imagine if I had interviewed Vivek Murthy three weeks ago, and the book was coming out in 21 months. I mean, talk about irrelevance at that point. So you could not have done what I just did, interviewing someone who's running the Coronavirus Task Force, which is arguably maybe the most important task force in the history of the United States, three weeks ago and deploying it. Impossible to do that. Do you have burning ambitions going forward? Is it, uh, you know, you said the Technorati top 10, the Apple top 10. Is it, is it to make the podcast a huge success? Is it to get Canva to be a trillion dollar company? What's, what's keeping you up at night? I couldn't hurt Canva if I tried. The podcast, if you were to plot the amount of effort I put into something versus the amount of compensation I get for it, you would find that much of my life is inversely related, i.e., I put so much effort into podcasting and I get very little return. Also, I put so much effort into surfing and I get very little financial return anyway. And some of the stuff that I do that's so easy and so quick, I make the most money on. The capitalist world doesn't necessarily uh, line up the value of what they'll pay with what your values are. No, not at all. I don't know if it's inverse, but it's definitely not one-to-one. For anyone listening out there, you know, for the entrepreneurs trying to get started out there and trying to figure out how to evangelize their product, do you have any uh, closing thoughts you want to leave them with or something they should take away from today? If you are an entrepreneur, I just have to highly recommend a few episodes to you. So one is Steve Wozniak. He truly explains the origin of Apple. And let's just say it's different from what you probably think it is. So there's Steve Wozniak episode. There is Bob Cialdini. Bob Cialdini is the author of the book Influence. He's the godfather of influence and persuasion. There's David Ocker. He's the godfather of branding. There is Scott Galloway, who is just kick-butt NYU psychology professor. I think there's a lot to learn from Christy Yamaguchi, how in Christy Yamaguchi's first competitive figure skating contest, she placed 12th. So she goes on to talk about, you know, how that actually drove her to eventually becoming the Olympic gold medal winner, right? So it's that kind of stuff that happens in those episodes of the podcast. Great. Well, Guy, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. I hope I didn't keep you from any uh, multi-million dollar <laughs> tweet opportunities and uh, appreciate you coming on the it. show. And I'm sure you're going to send me an email that says, your episode is live, Guy. Will you please cover the earth with it? I'll make sure to use the exact <laughs> copy that you told me you use for your guests just to make sure it's uh, even-handed. But tweet or no tweet, this has been wonderful. All right. Take care. Hey, Thanks so much, Guy. Bye. That's all for my interview with Guy Kawasaki. So much fun reconnecting with him. Subscribe to his podcast too, Remarkable People. 
and check out Canva. Try playing with it. Really cool tool. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate your help spreading the word about this show. Head over to iTunes, leave a review. You can also hit me up on social media, just on Twitter or Instagram. I'm simply at Gregory, and I read every tweet that comes my way. Thanks so much for listening. See you in a couple weeks. Bye.